Hey, remember when we used to have a podcast for our fantasy league? Whatever happened to that? Alright, and we are finally back. This is your host, Wolfman27, and I know some of you have been saying this episode is long overdue, and considering we'll be covering everything from weeks 1 and 2 today, and week three's already begun, you're probably right. But for real, guys, sorry for the wait with this one. I'm not even exaggerating when I say that this is the first actual free moment I've had to record pretty much all of September. I didn't even realize September was almost over until a couple days ago. I'm expecting things to calm down a bit more now, and I should be able to start recording on schedule again. Anyways, let's get on to the long-anticipated second episode of Season 3. Now, I hope you didn't get your hopes up too high. It's just going to be me today with no special guests, so I know what you're all thinking. Man, we waited this long for possibly the worst episode yet, and to that I say, you aren't necessarily incorrect. But even if this does turn out to be our worst episode yet, just remember, we have an extra long season this year, which means there are even more chances of a worse episode than this one to come out later this season. Who knows, maybe even next week. And on that note, let's rewind all the way back to week one, starting with some highlights. Things got off to a hot start with the top two ranked teams per our preseason rankings facing off, Fisher Sports and Phonet. In a surprising turn of events, our dear friend from Down Under came out on top. That's right, we let this smooth-talking Aussie put together the fabled Mahomes-Tyreek Hill stack, which paid off immediately as the two piled up 65 points just between the two of them. And while Fisher's team put up a valiant effort worthy of defeating the Week 1 league median, it wouldn't be enough to defeat his self-proclaimed best friend. Maybe things will turn around for our dear tradesman in Week 2. Spoiler alert, it won't. In other Week 1 news, Adam Jeffrey upheld his tradition of going completely ballistic in the first game of the season, this time racking up a total of 186 points. This is just cruel and unusual punishment to our poor buddy Jambrosa, who has the misfortune of receiving this beating from Adam Jeffrey annually. But at least with the new median rule, he didn't come out completely empty-handed this week. Speaking of the median, it claimed its first two victims in week one. I was able to somehow take down our former reigning champ, Koi's 302, while Aaron T4 defeated our previous guest, JDGG, but the median deemed our wins below average and we were unable to grab the second win of the week. Lastly, Jay and Pincus's team came sputtering out of the gate as Jmart blew up their matchup, and No Sleep Tonight showed us why we shouldn't be sleeping on his team tonight or any night after a convincing victory over Sibley the Best, who ironically was not the best this week. As expected, only one week in and we're already back in the thick of it. Some disappointed, others ecstatic. But at least we can all celebrate in the fact that we aren't the worst manager of the week in week one. Well, except for Koi's 302. That's right, coming off of a Super Bowl championship, Koi's immediately drops from first to worst. And in this league, that can only mean one thing. Rankings. That's right, the critically acclaimed weekly power rankings are back after raving reviews last season. And Koi's kicks us off this season with his week one power rankings. 
and here's what he had to say. Actually, ranking teams in week two is boring. I was also super slammed with work and couldn't get my creative juices flowing, so please see my below 4 out of 10 effort and 2 out of 10 execution power rankings. Given the continuously growing amount of analytics in the game of football these days, I believe everyone out there is searching for an edge. In order to win both in the NFL and fantasy football, I think you need players with a winning mentality. And what better way to have a winning mentality than by being born in a state with an SEC school and being surrounded by winning and greatness since day one. Some might say it is the SEC schools themselves that instill a winning pedigree amongst its players. However, I would disagree. One must look at Clemson, an ACC school who has been dominant as of late that shares a state with an SEC brethren school. Just by being located in a state with an SEC school, Clemson has become a dominant football program. The proof's in the pudding. The last two college football national championships were both SEC teams, Alabama and LSU. The last two non-SEC teams to win or claim national titles, Clemson and UCF, both share states with other SEC schools. One must go all the way back to 2014 when Ohio State won their title to find the last time a team from a non-SEC state has won a national title. And obviously the game has changed a lot in the last seven years, so can we even call Ohio State's title relevant? I say obviously no. So without further ado, here's the team's power ranked by how many players on the active roster were born in states which have at least one SEC school. A couple of interesting notes before the rankings. There are five foreign-born rostered in the league. Three Canadians, Palmer, Claypool, and Hubbard. One Korean, Ku, and one Nigerian, Aguilar. Although being born in the U.S., Amon Ra St. Brown is a dual German-U.S. citizen, which I found cool. The 12 teams' rosters combined to have players born in 34 out of 50 states, notably Missouri, Kansas, West Virginia, and Massachusetts, amongst others, had no players born in them on rosters. Every Big Ten and Pac-12 state had at least one born in them on our active roster. I didn't count exact totals, but Georgia has a fuck ton of players on our rosters. It was close to, if not higher, than California, Texas, and Florida. Louisiana also had a strong showing. I guess craziness for high school football really pays off. So in this case, we're going to go from the best to worst, starting with number one. Other than Coys, who has all 15 players born in SEC states, which we kind of already knew given the team name and draft strategy. In second, we have a tie between Jmart, Fonette, and Adam Jeffrey, who each have 10 players born in SEC states. Coming into fifth is also a tie between Jambrosa and Aaron T4, who each have nine players born in SEC states. And in seventh, we have a three-way tie between Wolfman27, Sibley the Best, and JM Pincus, with seven players apiece born in SEC states. Coming in at tenth is another tie between JDGG and No Sleep Tonight, with six players born in SEC states. And all the way at the bottom in 12th place, all by himself, is Fisher Sports, who only has five players born in SEC states. There you have it, folks. Our first worst manager power rankings in the books. But something tells me we haven't heard the last of the power rankings in this episode yet. But never mind that, it's time to talk waivers. Week 1 waivers may have been the wildest waivers we've had in the league so far. We're only going to cover the top bids to save on time, so let's just dive right in with the highest bid. 
which was Elijah Mitchell being claimed by none other than Fisher Sports for a very nice $69. Now, I'm too lazy to check all of league history, but that's definitely one of the highest bids we've had yet. And it was necessary. We had losing bids on Mitchell of $61, $52, $37, and $36. Now, obviously, since we're from the future, we know that Mitchell got hurt along with every other Niners running back. But assuming he can get healthy relatively soon, I think that'll still be a good investment. He seems to be the lead guy there for now. And Fisher wasn't done there either. He spent another $17 on Mark Ingram after his stellar Week 1 game. Plus, we all know how much Fisher loves his Houston running back, so he couldn't help himself here. Lastly, Phonette swooped in to grab the incredibly boring name Tim Patrick for $11 after my guy Jerry Judy went down with an ankle injury in the first game. But that's going to do it for week one. We're now at the halfway point, and we'll listen to a word from our sponsors and then jump back in with the week two coverage. Has your fantasy league commissioner been disappointing you lately? Does he claim to be good at fantasy football but still struggle to break 100 points on a weekly basis? Did they have a weekly podcast for their league and then disappear without explanation once the season started? Have no fear. Commission Switch is here. For the low price of $9.99.99, we will swap out your underperforming commissioner for a more competent and good-looking one. So what are you waiting for? Call 1-800-2-SWITCH today or visit our website, ditchthecommish.org, and say goodbye to your league management worries. Man, these targeted ads are really getting out of hand. Oh, hey there. We're back, and our time machine has now sped us back into week two. And it didn't take long for our defending champ to get back on track in week two as he scored the highest total on the back of Aaron Jones' ridiculous four-touchdown game and handed J. Mart his first loss of the season. Uncharacteristically, Adam Jeffrey was able to carry his high-scoring games into week two for what seems like the first time ever. Maybe there is some merit to this positive thinking thing after all. Even more shocking was this win came against Fonette, who fell flat on his face after demolishing Fisher Sports last week. Rumor has it, he burnt up too much energy in the previous week taking down his longtime adversary. I don't expect this to become the new norm for Fonette, though, and he should turn around in no time. Speaking of Fisher Sports, he picked up right where he left off in Week 1. Losing! This time to Jambrosa. Jambrosa put on a great showing for the second week in a row, but this week he was able to come away with the W since he didn't have to face the rage of Adam Jeffrey and his billion points. On the other end, Fisher put up a strong game as well, but just happened to run into a formidable adversary for the second week in a row. On the bright side, the median has not been an issue for either of these teams as both of them outdid the median score again in week two. Meanwhile, Sibley the Vest has rode in on Derrick Henry, and has shown why this team was feared so much in the offseason. Unfortunately, this was a win over J.D. Gigi, who also lives up to his preseason ranking of 12, now sitting at 0-4. Here's a tip for everyone. Try calling all of your players by a clever anagram name. It seems to be working very well in Sibley's favor. In fact, these anagrams deserve a shout-out, so I'm going to name a couple of my favorites from Sibley's roster. We have Austin Eckler, or Silent Eureka. Jason Sanders, or as we like to call him, Jason Nerdass, especially after he got no points last week. Baker Mayfield, Family Reek Bad. And my personal favorite, Tony Pollard, the Southern Bell Cow himself with the anagram name Dolly Parton. 
But let's move on to the final two matchups of week two, one of which was an incredibly close game and the other not so close. First, we had no sleep tonight, just barely edging out Aaron T4 due to surprise performances by Devin Singletary and Marquise Brown. Who would have thought either of them would be any team's highest scoring players of any week going into the season? Lastly, we had two teams returning to their normal ways. J.M. Pincus makes a full rebound from his disappointing start and absolutely obliterates my team with his team scoring 150.5 points, and my team went back to its regular scheduled under 100 scoring week. Not only did this match drop me to a miserable 1-3 record, but it also caused me to be the worst manager of week 2. Which, of course, brings us right back to... Rankings. That's right, the week two power rankings. Remember when I told you how busy I've been? Well, let me tell you, having to prepare my own power rankings on top of everything else certainly did not make my job easier. But I still did them, and why? Because I could never let my league mates down. Well, you know, other than not releasing the weekly podcast for two weeks in a row. Anyways, here we go. This week's power rankings will be determined by which team is the most mature. Don't worry, I'm not ranking this based on who acts the most mature or immature, because if that were the case, we all know I would likely be the most immature person out of everyone here, and where's the suspense in that? The way I'm going to make this determination is by taking the average age of every team's players on their active roster. The higher the age, the more mature they are. And as they say, with age comes wisdom, and with wisdom comes good fantasy football strategy. So respect your elders, and also beware of them, because they could be plotting your demise as we speak. Now that that's clarified, let's get started. At number 12, our least mature team is Jmart05 with an average age of 24.56. Nearly every player on Jmart's team's way under the age of 30. Only his kicker, Justin Tucker, and bench wide receiver Randall Cobb at 31 years each are there to impart their wisdom to these youngsters. Jmart also has the youngest rostered player in the league in general with Kyle Pitts, who isn't even old enough to drink legally in the U.S. at just 20 years old. Even in their youth, they're off to a decent start on the season, though, with a 2-2 two two record. Not too far ahead of Jmart is our number 11 team, JDGG, with an average age of 24.88. Now, this shouldn't come as much of a surprise to anyone. After we all saw JDGG pretty much draft only rookies for the entire second half of the draft, so naturally he's going to have an immature team. Unlike Jmart's team, though, McManus is JDGG's only player outside of his 20s and just barely that at age 30. No wonder this poor team has gotten off to an ugly start at 0-4. They need some veteran knowledge pronto. Moving on to our third most immature team now, which is shockingly Fonette. That's right, arguably the most mature member of this league is finished in the bottom three for our team maturity with an average age of 25.29. Fonette's oldest player is Antonio Brown, and we all know he isn't necessarily known for his maturity, so this ranking does make some sense. And at 2-2, two two, it seems that the team manager's maturity has been able to offset the player's immaturity just a bit. Coming at number 9, just edging out the number 10 spot with an average age of 25.31 is Sibley the best. Russell Wilson leads the team here at 32 years old and has helped navigate the team back on track to a 2-2 two two record and they're hoping to keep building on that lead. Sibley's also done well to play into the young mentality of his team by giving them clever nicknames to help boost team morale, which I think has definitely played a role in getting them back to this point in the rankings. 
And number eight, we finally reached my own team with an average age of 25.81. My new addition, Corderell Patterson, is the eldest here at just age 30, but a handful of late 20-year-olds helps boost the maturity level of the team just a bit. But not quite enough to help them out of a mediocre finish in the rankings, which is not an unfamiliar feeling for this team, which is currently sitting at a 1-3 record. Shockingly, at number seven, we have Jambrosa. That's right, even with a fossilized dinosaur on their team, they still didn't manage to crack the top half of the mature teams in these rankings, landing an average age of just 25.88. That would be because even despite having the oldest rostered player in the league in Tom Brady at 44, everyone else on this team is pretty young. But this strategy has worked out thus far for our new Floridian, as Brady has taught the youngsters how to cheat, uh, I mean earn, their way to a strong 3-1 start on the season. For the first time in quite some time now, Fisher Sports finds himself in the middle of the power rankings here at number 6, with his team having an average age of 26.13. Kicker Nick Folk at age 36 really drives the age of this team up, as well as fan favorite Mark Ingram at 31. You have to think that these two are the real reason this team has seen success to make it to a 2-2 record and not the youngsters like Kyler Murray or CMC. Going into our top five now in most mature teams, number five is none other than No Sleep Tonight with an average age of 26.25. No Sleep has another great example of age equaling success here with a strong 3-1 record to start the season. Ryan Tannehill leads the way at age 33, and although he has not had a great start to the season, you can't help but attribute his great age and leadership to this team's success. At number four, we have an even better example in Adam Jeffrey, who net an average of age of 26.31. Adam Jeffrey, alongside his 31-year-old players Adam Thielen, Travis Kelsey, and Marvin Jones, have really set in this positive mindset strategy, which has now led their team to an unprecedented 4-0 start to their season, and things are only looking up. Even though they may not have landed the number one spot in these rankings, don't think they aren't doing adult things like planning out flow charts and strategic plans to make their way to a championship this year. Our third most mature team is J.M. Pincus landing an average age of 26.81. No shock here as his team rides the wisdom and greatness of QB legend Aaron Rodgers at age 37. J.M. Pincus was wise enough to invest in young assets but still employ older vets to help shape the minds of the youth to a championship mindset. They got off to a rough start, but now sit at a solid 2-2 two and, two and look to build on that success. In second place is Koi's 302, which may seem shocking to many as no one really refers to Koi's as mature, but he doesn't have to be mature himself, because with an average team age of exactly 27, he lets his players be mature for him. Matt Stafford, Julio Jones, and Emmanuel Sanders are the oldest on this team here with ages of 33, 32, and 34 respectively also known as the perfect personnel for a repeat championship run. And last but certainly not least, our most mature team in the league is Aaron T4, who got himself an average age of 27.5. And this is without including T.Y. Hilton at age 31, who's on his IR. At a record of 1-3, though, Aaron T4 may have crossed the fine line from aging like fine wine to aging like milk. Team elders Matt Prater, A.J. Green, Cole Beasley, and Gronk have not done their part to give their wisdom to their younger teammates. Maybe if they can harness that wisdom, they can help turn this team around for the future. And there you have it. Week 2 power rankings are now in the books as well. So hang in there, folks. We've almost made it through this behemoth of an episode, 
I guess it's not the longest that we've had ever, but it feels long to me because this is definitely the longest that I've spoken just myself. So just a few more things to cover and we can officially claim to be caught up on everything. Let's move on to the week two waivers. Waivers in week two were not nearly as spicy as they were in week one, but we will take a look at the top ones here anyways, starting with the top bid, which was KJ Osborne, who was picked up by Jambrosa for $15. Osborne goes to a team here that's already loaded at starting wide receiver, but that's kind of similar to his team in real life where he's been seeing significant work anyways, despite playing with Thielen and Jefferson. Jambrosa nabs a nice step piece here, even if he overpaid just a bit. Next up is the previously mentioned Corderell Patterson, who I was able to grab for $13. Uh, Patterson's been pretty decent in a really dry RB landscape, so it never hurts to grab some more depth whenever you can. Jambrosa then went on to grab another wide receiver in Quintez Cephas for $8. Cephas could end up being another good depth piece. As we know, the Lions have no one to throw to other than Hawkinson and their running backs. But maybe Cephas could start making a case to see more targets going his way as well. And lastly, this isn't a huge bid, but I would be remiss to not mention No Sleep Tonight smartly grabbing Jeff Wilson for just $3 and slotting him right on that IR. Even if he can't be played right now, with the Niners running backs dropping like flies, Wilson could pay off nicely down the stretch. And that will do it for waivers. I can see the light. We're almost finished. We're almost caught up. Uh, the last thing I'm going to cover today is going to be the trades that we've completed since we last spoke. Um, I know that everyone has submitted their hot takes to me, and I was originally going to do a hot take preview before the season started, but being that we're already in week three, I think I'm just going to hold on to them to the end of the season when we can see them fully realized and criticize them or praise them for however well or badly they did. Um, so with that being said, look forward to that in the future, and let's move on to the trades. Maybe she's not the trade of the season. What if I'm the trade of the season? <gasps> so we have a total of six trades to cover today, and wouldn't you know it, Fisher Sports is involved in five out of six. Here's a challenge, guys. Let's make some trades without Fisher involved to really freak him out. His tradesman ego is inflating as we speak. The first trade that we're going to take a look at here is between Aaron T4 and Fisher Sports where Aaron T4 gets James Conner and Paris Campbell in exchange for Naeem Hines. So at face value, I mean, it's pretty even trade, nothing too exciting here. Uh, James Conner hasn't been anything too impressive so far, but he does have that potential to maybe get a touchdown here or there, whereas Naeem Hines, similar to last year already, he'll have this big blow-up game where he gets the passing work, but then he could disappear on a given week. And Paris Campbell... I haven't heard much from him either. So overall, I'd say probably not the craziest trade in the world, but I would slightly lean the hind side. Before week one started, Fisher and Fonette also did a QB swap where uh, Kyler Murray was traded to Fisher Sports while Fonette got Patrick Mahomes. And that's what led to Fonette getting this beautiful Patrick Mahomes Tyreek Hill stack, which worked out very well in week one and maybe not as much in week two. But no doubt that's going to be fun to watch down the for the rest of the season. And I'm sure Fisher is happy as well, getting to root on his favorite, least favorite quarterback in Kyler Murray for his own team. Then we had another interesting trade here between Fisher Sports and No Sleep Tonight, where Fisher Sports received Michael Gallup and $10 Fab in exchange for Hunter Renfro. 
Um, obviously, Gallup's currently on IR, and so No Sleep gets some nice, uh, consistent wide receiver depth. I mean, Hunter Renfro seems to be a good PPR target, at least. And uh, Fisher used that $10 to help with his giant bid that he made on Elijah Mitchell. So it was probably a win in Fisher's book. Now, the next three trades we have to cover tell a story, and that's the tale of Miles Gaskin. Miles Gaskin has already been on a total of four teams this season, and we're only in week three. Let's follow his journey, starting with his first trade, where he was originally on Adam Jeffries' team, but shortly following our first podcast of the year, when JDGG realized he needed to make some moves, he made a trade. So JDGG gave up DK Metcalf and Michael Carter in exchange for Cooper Cup and Miles Gaskin. This is a really tough trade to call. Uh, so far, DK Metcalf hasn't exploded quite as much as Cooper Cup has, but with DK Metcalf, you got to feel like that's going to come at any time. And Metcalf also has amazing keeper value. JDGG would not have been able to keep him for a third consecutive year, but now Adam Jeffrey gets to take that value here. And I think that's going to pay off dividends for him. I mean, he's already undefeated, and to have that keeper value while having that competitive of the team is exactly what you want in this league. Meanwhile, for JDGG, while it hasn't accumulated in a win yet, he at least did get Cooper Cup, who has been incredible for the team. And Miles Gaskin, which we will learn shortly, may have had a short-lived career on this team, but did pick up some much-needed running back depth. And uh, going on that Miles Gaskin tangent, his next destination would be Fisher Sports, where JDGG gave up. Miles Gaskin and tight end George Kittle in order to receive Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, Traquan Smith, and Robert Tanyan. So we've got the two big names in this trade, CEH and George Kittle, have both been disappointing so far. However, I don't expect that to be the case for the rest of the season, but I will say I am not nearly as high on Clyde as I was when this trade had processed. I still believe Clyde will have good value, but he's not going to be anything amazing and is overall disappointing, whereas Kittle... I think Kittle is more likely to turn it around and be a difference maker for Fisher. So I'm going to give him a slight edge in this trade and hope for JDGG's sake that the rest of the players can take a turn for the better. Which leads us to the final trade here and Miles Gaskin's current location where Fisher Sports and I have made a trade where I gave up Saquon Barkley and Kenny Galladay in exchange for Terry McLaurin, Miles Gaskin, and Naeem Hines. So I obviously give up my arguably best running back here and uh, split that down into Miles Gaskin and Naeem Hines, who are also not that impressive, especially with Tua going down to an injury. But I was willing to take that risk to get my guy Terry McLaurin back, who's gone back and forth quite a few times between me and Fisher. But this time I'm planning on holding on to him. He's got some great keeper value. And I don't think the quarterback situation matters for this guy. He's shown time and time again that whoever's throwing him the ball, he's going to make it work. And on the other side of things, I just wasn't that happy having two Giants in the first place. So to get rid of both of my Giants players, I'm not going to be that opposed to that idea. Maybe it'll work out for Fisher, though, since the Giants have the Falcons this week, and that's a pretty good matchup. So there you have it, all of week one and two action covered in just one single episode. Hopefully I didn't miss anything too crazy, hopefully I didn't talk too fast and you could all understand me. Uh, let me know in the chat if there was a huge event I forgot about, but I hope you all enjoyed it for what it was, and we'll be back on our regular scheduled releases from here on out. Have a great rest of week three. Night.